0: This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. We would appreciate your support at patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. You will get bonus episodes and ad free episodes. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'm solo this week, uh, but I had the chance to talk to someone I have a lot of respect for, and I hope you enjoy this interview it's with Rachel Lazar, the president and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. She became the president and CEO of AU in February of 2018. She's the organization's first non-Christian and female leader in its 75-year history. Rachel is a lawyer, advocate, and strategist who has dedicated her career to making our country more inclusive. In her position at Americans United, Rachel oversees the organization's work to protect freedom of conscience for all and ensure religion is not used to justify discrimination. Prior to coming to AU, Rachel worked as an educator on white privilege and racism and held positions as Deputy Director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, Director of the Culture Program at Third Way, and, And senior counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Rachel is a graduate of Harvard University and the University of Chicago Law School. She is also a former board member of NARAL Pro Choice America. We spoke about what the midterms revealed about America's views on church state separation, the infamous Bremerton case involving that praying football coach, and what it tells us about the Supreme Court and whether there's anything we could do to get Republicans to support church-state separation as well. How are you today?
1: I'm well, thank you. (laughs) I mean, things could be a lot worse.
0: Things could be a lot worse. So let's start by talking about that. As we sit, uh, Democrats have recently won retained control of the Senate. Republicans have control of the House. From a church-state separation perspective, what does that mean for the two years coming up?
1: Well, that's a big question. And, I mean, it means that it could have been a lot worse, you know. And what we saw from the midterms was folks showing up and saying that Christian nationalism isn't what they want. In this country, people showing up and saying, we want religious freedom and reproductive freedom, and rejecting the five abortion ballot initiatives, an unprecedented number of LGBTQ folks being elected. Um, So I think, all in all, this was a win for America's promise of freedom and equality, which is what church-state separation is really about. It's about ensuring freedom without favor and equality without exception for everyone. So it was a good election on whole for church. Do,
0: do you know if there are any numbers that point to I, I'm curious how people might have looked at the abortion initiatives and the anti-LGBTQ stuff. I'm wondering if it's too early to ask this, maybe. But do we know if people voted for that stuff because they're sick of this idea of Christian nationalism or when they voted for abortion rights maybe are they doing that because of that one issue as opposed to the broader Christian nationalism issue
1: I don't think we know you know for sure but I think it's fair to say that um Lurking at least just beneath the surface for most people, and certainly above the surface for for many of us, is the idea that an abortion ban imposes one narrow religious viewpoint on all of us. And there's nothing like having that imposition happen to make you feel that truth right? It's like uh, we miss what we no longer have, which is true religious freedom. And I, I know that as a Jewish person, a lot of other Jews have been outspoken about the way these abortion bans are violating our religious freedom because our religion requires us to have an abortion when our health and lives are at risk. And I don't think that Jews were talking as loudly about that before these bans set in. So I do think you know, what we saw in people showing up, and I mean, showing up in Kentucky and Montana as much as they were showing up in you know, California, and obviously they showed up in Michigan. Um, and, and I think that you know, what we saw was people recognizing that their freedom was on the line you know, and, and was being taken away and they were rejecting that. And that includes religious freedom.
0: I'm curious if you've seen this during your tenure at AU. I feel like a decade or two ago, it was really hard to get religious organizations on board with a lot of church-state separation issues, and now it seems like when I see the work AU is doing or a lot of other church-state separation groups— you all work very much in conjunction with a lot of more progressive religious organizations is that what you're seeing as well has the threat that au has been warning people about for a really long time finally seeped into these other religious organizations that this isn't anti what you're believing this is actually supporting whatever it is you believe
1: So that's a great question, and I think what we're seeing from these religious organizations isn't a new coming to church-state separation. I think that they were already supportive, but a new emphasis on the importance of church-state separation. And that's what we saw, Hemant, in our poll. Um, When we did public opinion research, we saw the majority of Americans actually support church-state separation—the supermajority of Americans, support church-state separation. But where we see a little bit of decline is in the category of folks who say it's one of the most important issues to them personally. Not enough, right? And so that's where we've had a hard time with all of the noise out in society, sometimes breaking through. Unfortunately, when things get dire, it becomes more clear to folks that they need to elevate the importance of something. And I think that's true of... Church state separation. Let me just say one more thing because you flattered Americans United for separation of church and state for working with the faith community. And I don't think we actually talk enough about how central to our work the faith community is and has always been. So we were founded 75 years ago in my hometown of Chicago by a group of mostly Methodist ministers, but also the president of the Southern Day Baptist Convention, Seventh-day Adventists, seminary deans, right? And a whole group of basically devout folk. And even today, um, the, the the chair of our board is the past two-term president of the National Council of Churches, we have a Seventh-day Adventist who just joined our board, a Baptist pastor, an Orthodox Jewish leader. Um, so, you know, and that's just in our leadership. Then in our work, in our day-to-day work, as you pointed out, we're constantly bringing the voices of faith denominations and clergy to the table. Just a couple of examples, and forgive me for speaking No, so long, no, I- this is <laughs> good. It's important. So take our Kennedy v. Bremerton case, which was, you know, the praying football coach case that everyone knows about and that Americans United argued on behalf of the Bremerton School District. Do you know and does everybody out there realize that the only clergy that were local, that weighed into the Supreme Court in that case, were on our side, Said that it is against religious freedom and against their own religious denominations' proclamations to support a coach that would impose prayer, his type of prayer, on students in a public school. That's incredible, right? And it really changed the narrative around the case in a really profound way. And that's what, you know, that's not just what Americans United does, and I'm very proud of it, but it's exemplary of the support that we do have from mainline Christian denominations, from Jewish denominations, from non-Abrahamic denominations. And let me just conclude with this. It's so rare today to bring together people across divides in America. That is just not where we are. And Americans United does that every day by bringing atheists and humanists and non-theists together with religious folks. And that's really one of the beautiful things about church-state separation. It's one of the reasons that our founders put it in our framing documents, and it's what Justice Breyer actually used to refer to all the time, which is the way church-state separation unites the country and prevents there from being massive divides. So I'm very proud of that role that Americans United plays in such divided times
0: since you brought it up i'm curious about this one of the things I know we've discussed it on this podcast about the Bremerton decision is that the majority's opinion against the school district and for the praying coach it included a lot of things that were just flat out factually untrue to the point where Justice Sotomayor included pictures to show this wasn't a quiet prayer at midfield of the football game but I'm curious knowing what we know about the current makeup of the Supreme Court and knowing that the facts seem to not matter to the ultra conservative majority right now. I'm kind of curious how that shapes your group's decisions on when to fight certain lawsuits, even if you think ethically, legally, it's the right thing to do. like What's the conversation about we want to pursue this case, but we also know that If it doesn't go our way, it could have bigger consequences for a lot of people. I'm kind of curious if you can tell people about how you strategize about these sorts of things.
1: Absolutely. So this is not a great time to proactively bring new cases that we're trying to move all the way up to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just not a great bet. Like the odds aren't great right now for church-state separation. And you've read the studies. It was uh, Judge Posner's son- was one of the authors of the studies that shows that this Supreme Court is ruling in favor of religion. I think it's, I'm trying to remember the number, it was published in the New York Times, it's uh, in the high 70s percent of the time as compared to in the Warren Court, when the court ruled in favor of religion in the 40s percentage of the time, and under the Warren Court, it was always in support of religious minorities and those who were Hmm. dissenting within their religion, whereas now it's mainstream Christians, you know, who are, who the court is ruling in favor of. So the odds aren't great and the studies bear it out, but you don't need the studies, obviously. But here's the thing, two things. Number one, these cases still need defending because our opponents are very emboldened and they're bringing the cases. So, They certainly need good lawyers to come in and take them on, you know. And there's a set of cases like this um, that Americans United is staking out ground in and trying to help shape the law in, which are under what's called, excuse me, the ministerial exception. So that's what the court has interpreted the First Amendment to give to houses of worship, Um, when they hire their clergy, which is the ministerial exception, which is the right to evade legal protections and to hire whoever they want, right, even if there's anti-discrimination provisions in the law. And people can get behind that. Look, what goes on in the four corners of your church or house of worship is what should be private and, you know, the government shouldn't control that. And that's your religion and people that, you know, religions have to compete, you know, and so you deal with, you deal with who you are. Um, By the way, like we know certain religions are bleeding the most people because of this, but we won't get into that right now. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, that's just sort of the way it goes, but what, but what we're seeing happening, and this is just an example of where we're coming in defensively is um, all these religious schools are calling on the ministerial exception and trying to expand it as a way to allow them to discriminate against teachers who don't have anything to do with teaching religion. Like the Greg Tucker, a a plaintiff of of ours in Colorado, who's the, you know, was the dean of student life in his Christian high school. And he puts on an anti-racism assembly. Some white parents complain. The school fires him. He sues them. And they're saying they have the right Um, to get around any anti-discrimination or Title VII employment protection laws on the grounds of the ministerial exception. So
0: what you're saying, are you fighting that case then knowing it may not go your way? Or do you how do you change how you go into that case?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we have to make the smartest arguments we can. Sometimes in those cases, we bring, you know, procedural types of of arguments to the table instead of only religious freedom ones. But, like, the ministerial exception cases are an example of where we think that there is some opportunity—right now there's sort of weird, as I said, procedural disputes. What's happening is the emboldened opponents are trying to evade kind of the basic legal procedures in order to appeal decisions before they're final. And so like, if that, I'm sorry to go so technical on you and I am a lawyer too, but like, if that goes up to the Supreme court, that would radically, if the court ruled in favor of being able to appeal so early, that would radically depart from the way the law is and create dramatically more work for the appellate courts and the Supreme Court. So we think, well, there's an opportunity to potentially win, but that's one answer. But the other answer really is bring cases also in state courts under state protections, and then they don't go to the Supreme Court, you know? And Mm -hmm. so then choose your state Supreme Court wisely so you know where it's gonna go. You know, choose your state constitutional protections wisely And increase your odds of winning. And finally, if you can't win, because, you know, who knows? And these are tough times, but you never know. Know that there is such thing as losing forward, you know? And I know you interviewed my colleague, Andrew Seidel. I listened to the the interview. It was great, you know, about his new book. And, you know, the Carson v. Macon case, which we, you know, wasn't our case, but which our cause lost on last term was a case that forced Maine taxpayers to fund religious education and religious discrimination. That exact same case had been brought multiple times before, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and it lost. Exact same case, exact same players, and now it won. And I think we need to understand that there's such thing as losing forward. And there's also such thing as changing norms and building our movement making it be more top of mind for folks that laws that are passed, things like these bans on abortion, are violations of our country's promise of separating religion and government, because we all know that intuitively. And if we can increase people's attention to those violations, to the threat, to something that is so foundational to our democracy, then we see The importance of our issue soar and that will help right later for elections, for um, all the battle, the policy battles that we're going to fight into the future.
0: Do you see AU as an educational group that happens to dabble in the law occasionally when it needs to? Or is it really more the other way around? And I ask that because usually when I see groups like AU or the American Humanist Association or other groups in the news, it's usually in conjunction with something going on in a lawsuit. And I'm kind of curious, like the organizations are not purely intended to be like some sort of legal organization. They have this broader premise, but I'm kind of curious, like, is... Is are the lawsuits kind of the thing you do or what else do people need to know about what AU does? That's outside the courtroom. And I'm kind of curious how you can get that into people's minds, because that seems like a bigger long term goal. But I don't know if it's breaking through.
1: Yeah. Okay. that's a great question. So. Every day, Americans United brings together religious and non-religious Americans to fight in the courts, in Congress, in state legislatures, and just out in the public square for everybody's right to live as themselves, free from someone else's religious dictates, and to believe as they choose, right? So that—I just named many more things outside of the law. I think legal cases do two really important things. Number one, they actually shape the law. And that's really important, right, because our laws are uh, sort of guideposts for how our society is going to be, and those have massive ramifications, right, for how people live and for our issue. But legal cases also give us an op- a platform, right, because they create press. Like We could and we do scream from the top of our lungs that everybody should be for passing a law that we helped Congress create called the Do No Harm Act that Senator Cory Booker is the key sponsor of and Senator Bobby Scott—Congressman, in the Ho- Congressman, excuse me, Bobby Scott in the House. So we have these great sponsors, and it's a great bill, and it had enough support to pass last Congress in the House, and, you know, it still has a lot of support. It would say that religious freedom can't be weaponized and used as a sword to discriminate. It's great. But no matter how much noise we try and make around that, we're not necessarily going to just break through, right? But when we have a case that goes to the Supreme Court or a case like our Amy Madonna case, which is about— and I love this case because I think it also shows that when religious freedom is undermined, all of us are at risk, even if we think of ourselves as being part of a majority. In that case, our client is a white Catholic married mother— of two autistic boys. I was in her living room watching her mother like the saint that she is. She's incredible. She's Catholic. And she grew up with foster siblings because her dad had been a foster kid. So she grew up with them in her house and she wants to foster and work with kids in her local community. She lives in South Carolina, Simpsonville, and she goes to her local foster care agency and they turn her away because she's Catholic and not evangelical Protestant. She funds that foster care agency with her tax dollars. And, you know, what she said to the AP was, you know, I never thought that they'd come for me you know i just i never thought that'd be possible and i mean it's amazing that her name happens to be amy madonna so the lawsuit right. is madonna versus <laughs> but you know it's 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 lawsuits like that that i think sometimes make a really big point to folks like oh i guess this could happen to me and they kind of break through the airwaves um but we were but at AU, our legal department's key, but it is but a piece of a, of a right. larger puzzle. And so, like, the Bremerton case is a great example because, you know, our organizers were there on the ground working with the faith community there that wanted to get involved, that were very upset about what was happening to the Bremerton School District. And our communications folks were, you know, putting um, our – Religious leaders and me on satellite radio tours around the country to speak to, you know, radio everywhere and TV. And our public policy department was educating Capitol Hill about what what was going on with this case and making sure that they were framing it in an accurate way, as you said because the other side was spinning the facts so hard and creating this world of alternative facts that even the the majority of justices brought into. So that was all really important work. And it was an example of sort of the whole machine coming together at Americans United.
0: I'm curious, I know AU is not a partisan group, but I'm wondering in your conversations with lawmakers and through some of the bills you're you're pushing and getting sponsors for, have you found anything that breaks through to Republicans in all your work? Like, is there a strategy for how you can get support for your issues on that side?
1: So these have been challenging times uh, to work with Republicans. And I just want to say really clearly that Americans United is is nonpartisan, right? We are a 501c3 and like houses of worship, which are 501c3s, we can't um, support or sort of criticize any one candidate or, um, you know, we are nonpartisan, so we, we don't take sides officially that way. Um, but it has been more challenging to work with Republicans. Back in the 1980s, this is a really interesting fact about Americans United, that over 50 percent of our members were Republican. Wow. And I think that's more testament to the way the Republican Party has changed um, than to AU, you know. And I think that um, today it's it's become a party that is pandering to a religious extremist base, and so you know they're really at odds with with who we are. But um, but really, church state separation is as American as apple pie and should be supported you say how can we break through kind of with people you said republicans but let's say with harder to reach
0: people but that's my point your church state separation like you said should be universally supported and accepted especially by politicians um but obviously one party is actively fighting against it in a lot of ways like you said there they have to play to their base But is there a way? Is there any is it an issue? Because is that that you can get through on that side?
1: I think so. So I think the strategy is uh, multifold. So I think it's important to deploy clergy voices. You know, I think one of the things that we're battling is this fear factor around religion. And I um, talk about this a lot. I mean, it's sort of like this. Don't touch that attitude towards religion that we have in this country. This country has deep respect for religion, you know, and, uh, you know, I personally don't have a problem with that. I think there's a lot of good that religion does in this country. I'm a Jewish person. I belong to a synagogue. I raise my kids in my synagogue and it's nice that they have a religious identity, you know, in my view. Um, But where the problem uh, arises is where the government is favoring one religion over another or religion over non-religion. And what we need to do to convince, in particular, lawmakers, but really the general public as well, that they should that they can be outspoken advocates for this core tenet of our democracy, church-state separation, is to dispel the myth that it's anti-religion, because uh, our opponents have done such a good job of mislabeling our cause as being anti-religion. I just spent all this time telling you about all of our religious underpinnings and how Mm -hmm. we work with religious denominations and clergy every day. We have a National Faith Advisory Council. We have a Faith Leaders United list of over a thousand faith leaders who we activate all the time. Um, It's such a myth. And I think until we take that myth on and dispel the idea that religion, that there's something anti-religion that we're not going to be able to break through. I think that's one thing. I think another thing that we need to do is elevate the threat. You know, and I think the more we make clear how high, like code red, as you know, the threat level is to this part of democracy. And I think part of that is connecting the dots to everything that falls when church-state separation falls. I mean, ultimately democracy, which... January 6th insurrectionists with their parading Christian crosses couldn't have done a better job of helping us demonstrate, but also like abortion rights, LGBTQ equality, our public schools, public libraries, I mean, you know, even, you know, protecting our climate. Um, I mean, the list is so long. And I think that the more we elevate the threat and make clear the connections, the more we'll bring Uh, harder to reach folks on board. So those two strategies are key.
0: What are some of the biggest misconceptions you think people have about church-state separation at this point? You you mentioned that there are people who treat it as anti-religious. It's obviously not. But outside of that one, have you been surprised by any of the things you've heard people say about it where you're like, that's not even close to being true?
1: Yes, I have been, and I'll tell you, like, I'll tell you what our opponents think. So our opponents, too many of our opponents would say that they're for church-state separation, and what they think it means is the right of Jack Phillips the baker to turn away Charlie Craig and David Mullins from the cake shop. And their argument goes, um, church and state are separate, so get the state out of Jack Phillips' church, you know. And they completely deny that Jack Phillips' Store is a public accommodation that relies on the police department and the fire department and the roads being served and clean. And that's why the state of Colorado passed an anti-discrimination law to protect vulnerable communities and their public accommodations. So church-state separation is actually the opposite of what these folks are arguing. What church-state separation says is, our state of Colorado is uh, is giving special favor to Jack Phillips' religion if they're allowing him to get around this protection that exists. But instead, they say the reverse, right? They say, actually, church-state separation is what should keep the state out of Jack Phillips' store. So that's another, I think, common misconception on the other side.
0: Do you think the people who represent jack phillips and other people like him and and the football coach in bremerton do you think they know that what they're saying doesn't make sense is it like a sincere belief or are they just twisting it because strategically they think that's a winning argument like do they do you think they understand church state separation as well as you do or do are they just do they have the warped view of it and it's somehow baked into the system over there
1: I literally cannot claim to get into their heads. Um, I really can't. But what I can say is from uh from an outside perspective and a clear perspective, what this fight about is their effort to preserve their own power and privilege in America. And, you know, that is, I think, the 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 driver. And, you know, whether they've deluded themselves or not, um, you know, I think um, you know, I think that. I can't answer that, but I, but I will say that I do think, and I just want to be really clear. I think the church state separation issue is complex. Like, I think it's complex. I think it's heady. I think it can be confusing. I think, um, you know, and I think that, how to place limitations is com- is complicated. And le- let me just sort of spell that out a little bit. Um, you know, what I always say is there's a very clear place where Americans United draws the line when it comes to creating exceptions for religion in this country. And it's where religion would, would cause harm to others, right? And we actually tested that in a poll that we did, and it was really popular. I was actually... Wondering how that would come down. And we all, we all live in our own bubbles. I try to get out of my bubble and I love getting out of my bubble, but we all do. And so we tested this. What we used to always say um, was religious freedom is the right to believe or not, as you see fit, so long as you don't harm others. And that was really popular, right? But then I asked myself, so is that really popular because that first part sounds really good to people? (laughs) Or are they really listening to the second part? So we chopped off the second part and we just tested this statement. The law should not allow anyone to use their religious beliefs to harm others. And when we tested that statement, it was incredible. 79% of the American voting population was with us. So that's great. So then the question becomes, what is harm? Mm. What is harm? And the definition of harm turns out largely to be what this debate revolves around, right? I mean, I'm thinking of the birth control case that was that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, listened to oral arguments from her hospital bed in Baltimore, you know, and, you know, I'm thinking of how um, the at the time, uh, the our uh, the lawyers on the other side just weren't talking about women. Just kind of like the Dobbs abortion decision, like the women aren't. You know, uh, it's you know, it's only the the fetal life, right? That's that's mentioned really, and the women are almost nowhere. Well, similarly in this birth control case, it took Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to say, "I'm worried about these hundreds of thousands of women." who won't have the seamless access to birth control that, that our uh, affordable care act promises them. And that's real for them, you know, and that's harm in other words. And so often I think, you know, when we don't have empathy in our judges or whether it's again, you know, blind empathy or intentional, you know, or unintentional lack of empathy, then we don't have harm. We don't have a, a, a clear argument around harm and we don't have the right outcome, you know, in these cases, I think you might hear Please. the silence.
0: I do. I'm very curious what you did and they're going to come take you away. For me. <laughs>
1: um,
0: Sorry, No, no, it's okay. Um, one question I'm curious about in this recent election season, we saw a lot of pastors openly endorsing candidates from the pulpit. It's been going on for a while, violation of the Johnson amendment and all of that. Um, One of the things that happened in the last Congress is they passed a funding bill for the IRS to fund them, I think, $80 billion over the next decade. And yeah, there's some misconception about what that funds and whatnot. I'm curious if you think the hiring of more IRS agents means anything will change in terms of enforcement of the Johnson Amendment.
1: So- Here's one thing about the Johnson Amendment. We actually never know what's happening with it, really, with all the investigations and warnings and things, because those are not public. Okay? So Mm -hmm. I just—I will say that, that 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 is fair and that we don't know. Um, That said, it feels also fair to say that for a long time that the government has not taken the Johnson Amendment nearly seriously enough— Um, And, you know, I mean, tax exemption is a privilege. You know, it's not a Mm -hmm. right. And this is uh, an amendment that's been around for 70 years now. And um, it absolutely should be enforced because it protects the integrity of elections and the integrity of houses of worship. And, you know, we have been flooded by support from the faith community. That is one of the most common ground uh, church state provisions that exists. Okay.
0: It's really important. So pastors um, don't want their churches turning into like arms of one party.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Because people don't show up to their house of worship to, to, you know, want to have a politically divided sort of scene there. I mean, don't forget that houses of worship can take positions on issues Right. They just can't endorse candidates. And that's a really important distinction, too. So, right. Pastors don't want that. um, And rabbis and other religious leaders. So I think it's it's uh, it's it's right to expect to feel more energy and buzz from the government around the enforcement of the Johnson Amendment. And by the way, I mean, that means the government starting out by educating houses of worship again about what it means and what they can do and not do. This is complicated stuff, right? It's like, yes, you can invite um, a candidate and to have a forum in your house of worship, but then you better invite a candidate from the opposing side or party. And if that candidate doesn't show up, that's okay. But you invited them, right? Like these are complicated sort of rules. And I think, especially after the Trump administration, where you know, he claimed he was going to destroy the Johnson Amendment. He claimed victory on that. And that didn't happen. Um, I think there's a real need for education right now around the Johnson Amendment and enforcement, both. Uh,
0: one final question here. Uh, we've talked about abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. Um, what, Outside of those two biggies right now, what do you see as the most important church-state separation issues that are looming in the future that are, are not top of mind, even for supporters?
1: Oh, well, I mean, one glaring omission in that short summary is public schools. I do think it's on the mm. mind of our supporters, but I think that's the untold story of, of this moment on church state separation, which is that our opponents unabashedly, want to do away with public education and give all of—and privatize it and give all of that money to mostly Christian academies. And that's always been the goal. Um, At the start of the school voucher movement, um, there was— a uh, documented will to evade desegregation orders out of Brown versus Board of Education fund White Segregation Academy. So I think sort of the, the danger to public schools is an enormous threat right now that may not be on enough people's radars.
0: And that means more people running for school boards. That means more people being aware of what's going on in their districts, things like that. Well, I
1: think that's really important. I just want to say that um, I I do think also in this midterm election that we saw kind of amazing results when it came to school board candidates in many places. So in just one example that I wanted to point to is in Michigan, um, there were 172 extremist school board candidates who ran in suburban counties, the folks that want to ban books and things like that, and 76 percent of them lost and maybe even more significantly Um, 73% of extremist school board candidates lost in rural areas in Michigan. Mm. So I think that's really promising, you know, and I think this is an incredible moment. I'm really proud to be leading an organization that is prioritizing reaching youth right now. And and because, you know, we saw Gen Z show up uh, in amazing ways in the midterms. And I think our efforts through our legal academy that we're running, through our youth organizing fellowship, our high school essay contest are really well placed because this is an activist generation that has come to play. And also our effort on broadening our movement right now. Um, We're going to be holding a Summit for Religious Freedom, In April. It's going to be the hub of the religious freedom movement. And it's big tent, right? It's inviting in the religious young people, people from different movements who might not realize that they're church state separationists, but they are. And that's where our efforts are really going right now, in addition to our lawsuits. So I hope everybody, if they aren't already, can go to au.org and join our movement because we need you now more than ever.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time and for educating all of us. Thank you for the work you do. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for the work you do too. And it's a pleasure to be with you.